Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, saying last week, look, this is Chicago. We don't want to have a catastrophe on our hands in Chicago like they have in Iowa and Georgia and Florida. We have made a difference in saving lives in the city because people have understood the need to adhere to the guidance. And that can't be said in other parts of the country and other parts of the country right around us. You know, again, I don't, I don't like to cast aspersions on other states and other cities, but you look at what's happened in Iowa. You look at what's happened in Georgia or Florida and some of these other states that just have not paid attention whatsoever to the guidance of reasonable, public, smart, public health expert. For more on this topic and a few others, we're pleased to be joined by Georgia State Representative and former county executive and North Carolina Central grad. I believe they're the Eagles. Representative Vernon Jones, uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's an eagle. It yeah. is an eagle. How'd yeah. you know? <laughs> I, uh, I'm a font of useless information like uh, Division One mascots um, and even some Division Two. <laughs> So so let's start with uh, what our mayor said about your state. Uh, that is, uh, you know, we don't want Chicago to be Georgia or Iowa or Florida, uh, but Georgia, a state that ignored the sensible advice of public health experts. Well, you know, I'm glad to be in the windy city. And let me say the mayor, with all due respect to her, I would love for her to come to Georgia. I'll invite her out to dinner. Georgia's doing extremely well. I guess she got her information from fake news. Our numbers are low. Our governor's doing a good job between balancing the public health, public safety, listening to the science, and to public health officials at the same time, understanding that Georgia, like many other communities and states, have to also think about economic recovery. People want to go to work. People have lost their businesses. They've closed. They're never open again. Those who are not receiving a stimulus check need help. Let me tell you, when I look at Chicago versus Atlanta, Atlanta's open, it's thriving, it's doing business. We're taking necessary precautions, uh, but people are coming there every day because we are striking a good balance. And so I would love to have the mayor to come down. As a matter of fact, I would like to host her. It's an open invitation to the mayor right now between me, her, and the governor. We'd love to have her to come down. And bring Governor Pritzker, too, because he explained the difference between Georgia uh, doing better than Illinois. It was because we have a major city here in Illinois. Yeah, apparently he's not familiar with Atlanta, so perhaps you could familiarize him, him, him with Atlanta. I would love for him to come down, too. I know our governor would, too. Uh, apparently he hasn't come south. We'll leave the light on the porch for him when he comes down. But a lot of our other state officials are, are 
watching what we're doing in Georgia. The president is watching what we're doing in Georgia. We 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 have really, our governor, Governor Brian Kenton, has done a good job of striking a good balance, protecting people, allowing people to go back to work, allowing restaurants to open, sidewalk cafes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but more importantly, people are getting out. They're trying to get their lives back together, and we need this. We we, we cannot. Let me tell you, America's not a police state. Some of these mandates are encroaching upon our constitutional rights, and we have to be mindful of that. Uh, I was here uh, participating in a an event yesterday where we were honoring those men and women who served and gave their life uh, and honored during Memorial Day. But at the same time, I think we made it known that we have a constitutional right to free and peaceful assembly. You, you understand that in, in Illinois, that makes you, quote-unquote, a hateful protester. That's how people like you are, are defined in this state who rally for their rights or for a reopening or have a difference of opinion on policy. They're just uh, try, They're just marginalized as hateful protesters. Well, I, I think the liberal media has done a fantastic job of scaring people because they're so anti-Donald Trump. Anything he says, if he says go left, they want to go right. If he says up, is down. Even when people are being helped, he's saying people are being hurt. And so there's a frenzy going on right now with misinformation, erroneous information, reckless information, and we should just strike a balance and understand the science. Now, uh, I buried the lead purposefully, but uh, you're a state legislator in Georgia, as I mentioned, but you're also a Democrat, and uh, you're also an African-American gentleman. And so I wanted to know if you were surprised to learn, considering you've endorsed Trump now, you ain't black, according to Joe Biden. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Listen, um, and that is divisive. If Donald Trump had said something like that, the liberal media would hang him literally. And that shows how the liberal media is trying to influence this election. What Joe Biden said in many's minds was very racist. In my mind, it was very ignorant. And you know, to the point and to the heart of what I've been saying, Democrats, especially liberal Democrats, they have taken the African-American vote for granted. It's a captive audience for them. They put illegals before African-Americans. They put other organizations before African-Americans. And, you know, anytime an African-American with conservative leanings and independent thinking is in, in the equation, then all of a sudden there's no room under that big roof or that big tent for diversity. There's diversity in terms of agenda. There's diversity in terms of race, age, et cetera. But for independent thinking, black man or woman with conservative leanings, there's no room for it. It's bigotry in the, in, the, in the Democratic Party. And I plan to continue to root that bigotry out. And what Joe Biden is saying into the leadership of the state and local Democratic Party is interesting how they re- recruit and support certain Caucasian candidates for statewide and positions they seem that are important. But African-Americans, they only support African-Americans when African-Americans are running against African-Americans, not when they're running against white Democrats. So it's a huge amount of bigotry going on in the, in the Democratic Party. But let me tell you, I put my party before my country, and I support it, and I will continue to support Donald J. Trump. I think he's done an amazing job prior to the pandemic crisis. Obviously, there was record low unemployment. Businesses were thriving. Small businesses were opening. He stood up against those foreign countries and said, wait a minute, you're not going to take advantage of America anymore. You're going to have to pay your fair share with the China trade, with uh, the NAFTA agreement over involving Canada and Mexico. He brought them back to the table and did the right thing, put America back in a better position. And so this president, and specifically what he's done for African-Americans, has done more than any president in my lifetime. And I give you an example what the president has done for prison reform with the First Step Act, reuniting black families who were separated from their family and their, and their careers and their, and their rightful place in society, 
Uh, he's allowed them to be reunited. Where Joe Biden wrote a crime bill with uh, had this crazy uh, no discretion for judges to give a time that matched a crime, and it was mass incarceration. President Trump has fixed that. He's still tough on crime, and I like that. At the same time, what he's done for historical black colleges, not only did he restore funding that was cut, but he wrote it into law. No other president has ever done that in the history of this country. And I am a proud graduate of North Carolina Central University, uh, located in Durham, North Carolina. And so Opportunity Zone districts, as many African-American communities, many communities, period, uh, stuff in blighted areas and the reinvestment through individuals and small businesses getting involved, getting tax credit, revitalizing those communities, those important initiatives by this president. This president does what he says he's going to do. That's hard to find now. And when you uh, came out in support of Trump as a de- sitting Democrat state legislator, you <laughs> unsurprisingly received uh, quite the backlash. And you were initially going to resign <laughs> your seat, and then you decided not to resign your seat. Explain the thinking uh, during that uh, that brouhaha. First of all, I just cannot continue to stomach what Democrats are doing, putting illegals before Americans. Matter of fact, Nancy Pelosi, that $3 trillion bill that passed out of the House, giving stimulus checks to illegals when they're American families and families right here in Chicago that can use $1,200 that they didn't get. When I look at the radical socialism track that they are going around, I just don't believe that's American. And so, yes, I came out and endorsed President Trump. They lost their minds. They were like, wait a minute, I can't believe you would do this. Uh, how can you? You're a Democrat. You're black. You're supposed to vote this particular way like Joe Biden. Just reemphasize what I said. And uh, again, I decided to put my country for my party. But more importantly, the backlash was nothing compared to all the support. Uh, after initial, initially, I decided I was going to re- resign, but all of the support that I got from people across the country. And I decided I'm going to finish my term, stay on the battlefield. You know, I left that plantation, turned the light off, and gave that sweet to somebody else. <laughs> I'm a free-thinking, independent black man. He is State Representative Vernon Jones, State Representative from Georgia, former county executive. And uh, State Representative Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to have you in Chicago. Wish you'd stay and maybe run for office here, but I understand George, George is friendlier. Uh, well, I hope uh, Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker take you up on your generous offer to uh, yeah. to host them in Georgia, I, learn a little bit about Georgia. And I mean that in a good way. I really mean that in an honest and sincere way. I would love to work with them. So if any of their people are listening right now, please reach out to me uh, and, and uh at the state capitol, and let me give you my number so they can say that they didn't have, they can't say they didn't have my number, but it's 404-656-0287, please call. And by the way, for your listeners, my Twitter is at Rep, R-E-T, Vernon Jones, at Rep Vernon Jones. Very good. Representative Vernon Jones, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Safe travels back. You got a deal. Thanks. Bye-bye. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The discussion about a response to a predicted second wave of infections in the fall and the winter. Uh, let's start with uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, of course, one of the key medical advisors to the president. 
uh, her appearance on this week, yesterday, she said this. We're trying to understand during this period of coming out of the closure, how do we maintain openness and safety? And I think that's what we're going to be learning through May, June, and July. And also, I want to be very clear to the American people. We are preparing for that potential fall issue, both in PPE, which is protective devices, both in ventilators, stockpiles, and ensuring that we're really pushing on therapeutics and vaccine development so we can be ready if the virus does come back in a significant way. But you don't see the country closing down again. It's difficult to tell, and I I really am data-driven, so I'm collecting data right now about whether governors and whether states and whether communities are able to open safely. And uh, on the vaccine development front, I mean, the good news, uh, that was good to hear that there's planning prospectively for an anticipated second wave. That makes eminent sense, lessons learned from the last several months. I would love to be able to talk to more of Governor Pritzker's and Mayor Lightfoot's experts, maybe we'll continue to effort them. But just to set some baseline understanding of what we're trying to measure and what we're trying to accomplish. On the vaccine development front, uh, we mentioned this in, uh, briefly with uh, John Hendraker earlier in the program, but sort of a remarkable statement coming out of Oxford. Oxford uh, is uh, one of the um, Research groups, a research group at Oxford, one of the more promising uh, potential vaccine developers, along with Moderna in this country, the Oxford's uh, University of Oxford's Jenner Institute and Oxford Vaccine Group began developing a COVID-19 vaccine back in January using a virus taken from chimpanzees. But um, Professor Adrian Hill, one of the uh, researchers and the institute director, said the number of coronavirus cases at in uh, Britain is dropping every day and they're running into a problem. They may not have enough people to test the potential vaccine on the clinical trials uh, saying it's a race against the virus disappearing and against time. We said earlier in the year that there was an 80% chance of developing an effective vaccine by September. But at the moment there's a 50% chance that we will get no result at all. We're in the bizarre position of wanting COVID to stay at least for a little while because they need the infected on which to test the virus on who to test the virus. Um, okay. Trying to follow the logic. Well, but, and, and, and this also goes to the, the whole issue of, of the uh, ethical questions around human challenge trials, uh, providing low doses of the vaccine uh, to infect people that are younger and healthier and, and thus less susceptible to the, to the virus so that you can test the vaccine. Maybe that's something that will have to happen uh, for Oxford and maybe in the United States as well. Uh, Then there's this. Here we go again, sort of the stop and start, what we understand for a while, and then what's walked back. The U.S. could finally be free of the coronavirus in late September, according to scientists in Singapore at the Singapore University of Technology and Design using AI, artificial intelligence, to update their charting of the pandemic's life cycle by country. That's what they initially said. And then they took down their country-by-country charts from the website, uh, instead posting a disclaimer that the research they posted was for educational purposes and may contain errors. So everything is, you know, uh, well, not to arbitrary, but to be viewed with some 
skepticism. This is, you know, it's like the practice of medicine. This is research. This is science as a question that is never fully answered rather than the scientists and data say, and you have politicians, politicians issuing edicts and speaking with the certainty that the actual scientists and researchers they're referencing don't convey. Uh, and then uh, lastly, the CDC, this just has to be repeated, revising down its estimated case fatality rate to less than four tenths of a percent down from what, two and a half percent. Some of the early models that drove the lockdown policies down from eight tenths of a percent to one percent. It's overall uh, symptomatic case fatality rate, 0.4 percent, roughly four times the estimated CFR for the seasonal flu. The CDC estimates that the CFR case fatality rate for COVID-19 falls to 0.05 percent among people younger than 50. That's one half the rate of the seasonal flu. Under 50, 0.05, rises to 1.3 percent for people among six, uh, 65 and older. People in the middle, 50 to 64, CFR 0.2%, twice the seasonal flu. What we know now, CDC's revised down estimates and with you know more revision sure to come, consistent with what we've observed about the virus being a serious issue for people older, people with comorbidities being akin to the seasonal flu, if even that lethal for people that are younger and healthier. And yet the policies we've chosen up until this point. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Dr. Kevin Pham. He's a MD. He's a contributor to the Daily Signal, former graduate fellow <coughs> in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Pham, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me again. Why don't we start with the CDC's revisions down and just the uh, the 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 uh, continued fight against people like Melinda Gates who think money buys infectious disease expertise uh, and the pronouncement that COVID-19 anywhere is COVID-19 everywhere. It just simply isn't based on the data. I suspect that money really can buy you expertise. And the more money that you spend, the more you have people who are hyper-focused on a problem. So then what you get are people who see um, infectious diseases like COVID-19 everywhere. And so they get a little bit too much into this, and then they see that that's the problem. I think that's that's really sort of what um, undergirds Dr. Fauci's uh, worldview. So we see him kind of go back and forth. Uh, earlier last week, he said that, if or I mean, perhaps it was earlier than that, but he said that if we rush headlong into reopening, then we risk a, um, a resurgent in cases, and then we'll, that will really set us back economically. Um, and then later on, he said that if we maintain a lockdown for too long, then we're going to be we're going to have irreparable damage. And, you know, the truth is both of those things are right. But, mm. but if you maintain these like heavy mitigation things, you're guaranteed to have irreparable damage. Whereas if you start to reopen the country, then you risk irreparable damage. And between guaranteed ruination and risking ruination, I would rather risk it than be guaranteed it. When we come back with Dr. Kevin Pham, I want to talk about President Trump's use of hydroxychloroquine as a uh, prophylactic, as well as. A study suggesting that many more Americans than previously believed may already be, to varying degrees, uh, immune from COVID-19. More with Dr. Kevin Pham when we return.
listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Dr. Kevin Pham. We're talking all things COVID-19. With respect to um, antiviral treatments in the interim, of course, there was much controversy over the last week as President Trump said he was uh, undergoing a a regimen with hydroxychloroquine that has since concluded, uh, so he said. Uh, And, you know, the the media uh, feasting on this, uh, trying to uh, suggest that the president was putting his life at risk or signaling to others who could put their lives at risk. When in point of fact, uh, HCQ is uh, under an emergency use authorization for COVID. So it's a matter between a doctor and patient, including the president of the United States. And um, uh, and there are clinical trials underway. So um, doesn't it make sense just to chill the freak out and uh, wait for the clinical trials and let doctors and patients make collaborative decisions? Right. The only, the only validity to criticizing the president in this case, in the case of hydroxy, his personal use of hydroxychloroquine that was decided between him and his doctor, and he's surrounded by a whole bunch of other doctors right at this time. The only validity to the, that controversy is that I would rather not have my president be participating in the clinical trial. But the truth is, you know, it's being tested as a prophylaxis in, uh, in America's got, <clears throat> excuse me, there's two, two trials right now looking at using this um, drug as prophylaxis in healthcare workers. And in India right now, they have already, their equivalent of the NIH already approved the use of um, hydroxychloroquine as a prophylaxis. So there's not, the, the science isn't settled. Science has never really settled on anything, but there's no, there's no solid fact that this is more dangerous to your health than not. There's a recent Lancet study that showed that people who took it were, had higher mortality but that was a retrospective study, and you can't really, you cannot tell causation from a retrospective study. You can only really do that a prospective study. All the science that we have now suggests that there may be a possibility that it does work. So, you know, the the science is really ambivalent about whether it does or does not work. Either either can still be the case. What we really don't need right now is using a drug, a potential cure for this disease, as a partisan weapon right now. That's just unhelpful to everybody. There was a a study that's going to be published in the journal Cell. Uh, reported on uh, by John Solomon. Researchers from California, New York, North Carolina discovered certain types of cells and blood samples taken from donors over between the period 2015 to 2018, well before COVID-19, were reactive against the COVID-19 virus. In other words, those blood samples were at least partially immune from the coronavirus, even though they had never been exposed to it. Uh, From the paper, CD4 plus T cell responses were detected in 40 to 60 percent of unexposed individuals. This may be reflective of some degree of cross-reactive pre-existing immunity to COVID-19 in some, but not all individuals. And the point being, and this is, you know, a supposition, it's a research paper soon to be published in, in, a, in a medical journal, but that you may have a significant percentage, if not a majority of the population, uh, having some degree of pre-existing immunity to COVID-19, if what this research paper suggests is true. Right. And that's that could show that there's <clears throat> there's some cross immunity to possibly other coronaviruses, because one of the one of the cold cold viruses is a coronavirus. 
and and just in everyday, um, there are many coronaviruses out there, so there may be some cross immunity, which would be a good thing if we have that. And also suggests to me that a vaccine might be more effective too, because there's a lot of there's a lot of stability in whatever the antigen that is being targeted by the immune system. So that speaks to a couple of different things, but essentially it says that the coronavirus is a relatively stable virus, and that gives us several new targets that we can start attacking to to really stop this thing moving forward. What's your uh, uh, sense of the prospect of a second wave in the fall and in the winter and the, uh, the strength or what we, what we suspect about the strength of that second wave if it's likely to happen? I would suspect that the strength of it will be greatly diminished. The public health messaging has been very prominent, and I think people will really change their behaviors, not just, not just as a result of what the government tells them to do, but just as an assessment of their own risk in their own daily life. I think people will change the way they behave and act. But I do think there will be a second wave just because the colder, drier temperatures in fall are going to make um, the virus particles more stable in air and on surfaces. So there will be a greater chance for infection. And when you're looking at population statistics for infections, and it's basically, again, percentages, as the likelihood that this thing is more viable for longer, then more people will get infected by it. So that's that's just kind of how it plays out. I think that we'll be ready for it. We've been spending a lot of time in the industry or time and resources in the industry to, to really ramp up our resources and be able to handle a second wave. So I think it will come. I don't think it will be that strong, and I think we'll be ready for it. He is Dr. Kevin Pham. He's an MD. He's contributed to Daily Signal, former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation as well. Dr. Pham, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Always always a pleasure. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Is there anything that the government won't backstop or at least be proposed to serve as the backstop in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak? Now you have a proposal from a House Democrat, Carolyn Maloney, a leftist from New York, that would essentially, due to the commercial insurance industry, what Obamacare did to the health insurance industry, a Faustian bargain, if you will, Oh, by the way, there are some, including White House economic advisor Kevin Hazlitt, saying, you know, there are limitations to uh, the blank checks we're going to write. At least that's the White House's perspective. There's already a lot of money for state and local governments. And so what we need to do, and it's what we're doing right now, is run a big data operation, look at how they're spending the money that they've already gotten, project what the shortfall will be, and then talk about it with Democrats and Republicans. And that's where we are right now. And, and I think that a lot of the state requests for state and local bailouts that you're seeing out, out there up on the Hill are like radically, radically more money than the expected shortfall for the year. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're analyzing the numbers right now and the requests are kind of absurd. Yeah, kind of absurd. So states and localities are going to have a difficult time being the backstop for businesses that have been crippled by the uh, lockdowns. So Carolyn Maloney wants the federal government to step in, mandate that property casualty insurance companies provide pandemic insurance policies and then backstop their losses. 
importance divided the insurance industry. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by R.J. Lehman, Director, Finance, Insurance, and, Tr- uh, and Trade, and Resident Senior Fellow with R Street, former Deputy Director of the Heartland Institute Center on Finance, Insurance, and Real Estate. R.J. Lehman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, is it a fair characterization of mine uh, comparing uh, the uh, Maloney plan to do to, to commercial insurance, what Obamacare did to health insurance? I'm not sure if that's quite what I, how I would put it, but I don't think that the Maloney plan is the right approach to this issue, for sure. And why is that? Well, I don't think that this risk that we're talking about, uh, the risk of, of having to shut down because of a pandemic, really lends itself to an insurance solution at all. Uh, if you think about how insurance works, it's risk-based, ideally. So uh, you get charged more in premiums if you're likely to make a claim and you're going to have a deductible to discourage you from making a claim, and you're going to have a copay so that you control your costs. But in the situation we're talking about here, we have businesses who, for very good reasons, uh, would rather not shut down, right? Obviously, in many cases, this is a death sentence that they have to shut down, but there's a public health argument that they should shut down. So if you take those two things and overlay them on each other, you want to provide an encouragement for them to shut down, and that's the opposite of what a risk-based insurance policy would do, right? If you're a restaurant and you know you're going to be ordered to shut down in, in the event of a viral pandemic and you're going to be charged higher rates, you're probably just not going to buy the coverage. That's not how I would structure this. I do think that this is a place for the government probably. I am very skeptical of 99% of all government insurance programs. I don't think that this is a risk that the private market is going to write privately. Um, and that the government probably, especially when the government is the one ordering the shutdowns, the government does bear some responsibility for uh, helping to make those businesses, if not whole, at least keep them afloat. Right. And so the plan, as I, I understand it from reading about it, Treasury Department steps in to pay once the industry, the insurance yeah. industry, has suffered a $250 million hit. The government yeah. would then be able to help cover up to three quarters of a billion dollars in losses per year. Three quarters of a Actually, three quarters of a trillion dollars. <laughs> I thought three quarters of a trillion dollars. Yeah, seven hundred fifty yeah. billion. Three and a quarters of yeah. a trillion dollars each year. Um, yeah. Right now, during the pandemic, some estimates saying uh, the shutdown costing five percent of GDP monthly, which mm-hmm. is about one trillion dollars. So, who gets left holding the bag, uh, or is it both insurance companies as well as uh, taxpayers? The insurance companies under the Maloney plan would theoretically only hold the two hundred fifty million dollars in terms of claims payments. There's another part of it that the Maloney plan doesn't talk about very much, but you have to bear in mind, if the insurers are the ones that are administering this program, back during Katrina, the claims adjuster capacity of the entire United States was devoted to just dealing with claims from Katrina. In this sort of situation where you have businesses across the entire country, and you're going to need claims adjusters across the entire country servicing them, the insurance industry just doesn't have that capacity. They couldn't possibly have enough people on hand. It's just not even feasible that they could administer this. So why is the proposal receiving support from, uh, the, like, the National Retail Federation, for example? Sure. The retailers, I think, in a lot of a lot of businesses are looking for an answer, and this was the first thing that came up. I don't know that – I can't speak for them, but I don't know that this is the only structure that they would look at. And there are a few voices in the insurance industry who like the Maloney plan, but they are uh, definitely in the minority. She argues, like the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, the federal government 
serves as a backstop to maintain marketplace stability and share the mm-hmm. burden. So so the, the program for insurers would be voluntary, though they'd be required to offer pandemic protection if they participate, and then it's a shared burden. What's wrong with that? We don't know how TRIA, the terrorism plan, would actually work in practice because it's never been used. Um, it's still basically very theoretical. Uh, in the case of the terrorism program, the industry actually retains a lot of the risk. Uh, $250 billion is not very much. Um, there's a, a small hurricane will certainly do a billion dollars of damage. So the industry is not actually keeping much of the risk. It doesn't really have the capacity to administer the program. It's not, uh, it's insurance is not designed in a way that maximizes the public health benefits. I just don't think the insurance industry really should be involved in this, except maybe to market it. Well, right. And and frankly, um, you know, this is even if it uh, was uh, enacted in legislative form, you know, you're still relying on um, a federal government that, um, uh, you know, just increased its debt load by 50 percent in the last 60 days. So, so, you know, the the tendency to rewrite the rules after the fact is uh, is a real risk as well. And of course, these are individuals in the business of assessing risk. Yeah, I, I think it would be great to find a private sector solution, and I am always inclined to look for a private sector solution. The size of this kind of risk, we had the whole world basically shut down, about 50% of global GDP shut down overnight. The insurance industry cannot possibly be big enough to, to substitute half of the global economy. It, you, it just wouldn't ever happen. He is R.J. Lehman, Director of Finance, Insurance, and Trade, and resident senior fellow with R Street, former Deputy Director of the Heartland Institute Center on Finance, Insurance, and Real Estate. R.J., thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Bill McGurn writes in the Wall Street Journal about the University of California college system announcing that it would dump the SAT and ACT for admissions into its colleges. Of course, this is uh, intended to uh, more and better diversify the student population in California, particularly as it relates to discriminating against Asians, uh, Asian Americans, which represent about 30 percent of UC undergraduates, even though they're only 14 percent of the population. That becomes a big problem, just as it was at Harvard and the Ivy League. You want to discriminate against those who are performing in order to get the right racial and other identitarian mixes that they so desire that, you know, the whole witch's brew of just what is the proper distribution of identity in the undergraduate student body. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the Asian American Coalition for Education opposed the elimination of SAT and ACT scores. Bill McGurn digs deeper, as he often does. Yes, uh, wealth is an issue. So those on the low families on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum face uh, a disadvantage. He points out family structure is actually as important as family income in predicting who graduates from colleges today. This from uh, American Enterprise Institute scholar Bradford Wilcox, who's also a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. Data pretty conclusive. The more intact the family, the better of education outcomes. In a new uh, Institute for Family Studies study released 
last week. Research psychologist Nicola Zill reports that when it comes to graduation from top colleges, students of intact families are twice as likely to do so as those from all other family types combined. The data is there. All other families combined. Marry both parents, uh, 20%. Widow, divorce, separated, adoptive, birth and step, foster, separated mother, cohabitating, birth parents, never married, grandparents, all the way down the line. Uh, as uh, Bradford Wilcox asked, why can't universities bring themselves to tell the truth that if you'd like your kids to get a college degree, especially from a selective college, you do well to get and stay married? I mean, this is the observation of Charles Murray in his book, Coming Apart, that those uh, champagne socialists, as I call them, in suburbia or in the hoity-toity sections of major metropolitan areas, they don't believe in theory what they do in practice. They don't preach what they practice. They practice the two-parent intact family and setting their kids off on a path to success. And they preach, you know, everything goes. I'm not here to suggest one thing, no matter what the category is, that one thing is better than the other, that one thing is a better driver of a successful outcome than another behavioral choice or familial choice or choice in general. All things are morally equivalent. So is the SAT and ACT really the problem with respect to college admissions? The uh, idea is to not measure things. Right. This is what the left does in public policy, in the public policy arena. Generally, it's all about inputs, not about outputs. The important thing is to get the right mix of students. However, you have to get there. Uh, Certainly a meritocracy is not the way. And the outcomes are secondary to congratulating ourselves for the inputs in the system. That's what's happening in California. And it's likely to spread to other university systems, unfortunately. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Holman Jenkins stuck the landing once again in the Wall Street Journal talking about uh, the media and the Russian collusion hoax. If they had any grit, many of our senior reporters would be hopping mad now to learn they had been manipulated in, into reporting untruths to the public if they had any grit. Instead, many of them seem to be hanging around the same leakers and whispers, hoping for new talking points to get themselves off the hook in the air clearing now coming. Fools become liars when they knowingly persist in their misrepresentations to preserve personal dignity and professional standing. By rights, the rectification should begin with the dismissal on competence grounds of the leadership in many newsrooms. It won't, but at least register in your own mind how routinely and sometimes completely press behavior is at odds with the values the press claims to represent. Jenkins arguing that the story of the Trump era will be how the D.C. press corps became more Trump-like than Trump in their opposition to Trump. And I'll tell you what, he has a um, surprising ally to a certain extent on that, and that is Van Gordon Sauter, who is a former president of CBS News in the 80s. He writes in the Wall Street Journal, the liberal-leaning media has passed its tipping point. I mean, this is a momentous statement considering the position that he held 
and the veneration he has for news organizations like his former employer. But he notes Dan Abrams, who's the founder of the website Mediaite, ABC's chief legal affairs, he has a novel but valuable idea for the media, candor. He uh, noted what Abrams said at a uh, February conference. I think the first thing that would help is to admit that people in the media are left of center. Wow. Right. What a revelation that would be. But in terms of like conveying like we're honest about who we are, Van Gordon Sutter writes, uh, it would be delightful if a publisher, an editor or a reporter would just say, yes, I am left of center. I'm proud of it. I think our reporting is accurate. It best serves the public and the credibility of the media. So there publications open about their bias might feel freer to focus on the specifics, story selection, presentation, facts, fairness, balance. He uh, writes that America won't reunite until far more people can look at a news story in print or on the screen and, of all things, believe it. Well, I think we're a long, long way from that uh, uh, halcyon vision of the press in terms of uh, having any sort of credibility reestablished as they persist, as Holman Jenkins writes, with trying to come up with cover stories for being co-conspirators in the fraud that was perpetrated on the public. For more on this topic and a few others, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend John Hindraker. He is the president of Center of the American Experiment and a contributor over there at PowerlineBlog.com, which is an excellent blog that requires daily reading. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Uh, how about uh, former uh, president of CBS News uh, weighing in, at least in the direction of a Holman Jenkins and some of the things conservatives like us have been saying for, I don't know, a generation or two? You know, it's a little ironic because my website, Powerline, really became well-known in large part as a result of our role in exposing Rattergate. You remember that from the 2004 presidential campaign when 60 Minutes tried to help John Kerry win the election by publishing lies about President Bush's service in the Texas Air National Guard. turned out to be complete fiction, and we and others uh, exposed it on the internet. Dan Rather got fired and there were various consequences. But the idea that CBS News is a leftist organization that exists in large part for the purpose of helping the Democratic Party and hurting the Republican Party. In that case, by the way, that story on 60 Minutes, that was coordinated with the John Kerry presidential campaign. The idea that, that, that there ever was a time when news organizations like CBS were in any way objective or fair is a fantasy, and it's a little bit ironic that the former president of CBS News is now saying, gosh, maybe we should just admit we're leftists. It's, it's the Bill Buckley rule. you got to give people room to come over to your side, right, uh, John? I, I guess. I mean, you know, the, the, the real problem in my mind, and, and by the way, I want to go back to that Holman Jenkins piece for a moment, which I haven't read. I just heard your description of it. But I would, to some extent, take issue with it in this sense. I don't think it's really true that all of these reporters and editors at the New York Times and the Washington Post were fooled by the leakers and were played by the leakers. I don't think that's what happened. I think they were in league with the leakers in their effort to destroy President Trump. I don't think they regret that. You know, I I think they regret that the effort failed, but but the fact that they lied, that they published lies, I think they'd do it again in a heartbeat. No, I I think that's the point he's ultimately getting at. You know, if they had any grit, if this were honest, that they had been fooled, they had been lied to, then they would be reacting differently than they are. And he points to David Axelrod recently interviewing Adam Schiff at his uh, Institute for Political Skullduggery at the University of Chicago and not asking the question about how do you explain your lack of evidence and your wrong-headed assertions for three years 
uh, with respect to Russian collusion. The question wasn't even asked, wasn't even broached, and he references the privilege protection racket that goes on between the political class and the media class. So I, I think he's actually getting to your point. He's just saying, you know, if they were reacting this way, you could believe they were fooled. Since they're not, you know they're not. Yeah, that's right. I mean, how about the Pulitzer Prizes that got handed out for reporting about the Russia hoax that turned out to be completely false? Any chance those prizes are going to be given back? Any possibility reporters and editors will say, well, you know, with hindsight, we shouldn't get the Pulitzer for reporting things that aren't true. No, that's not going to happen. Wait, reporting things that aren't Nicole Hannah-Jones got a Pulitzer this year for reporting things that we know aren't true ahead of the awarding of the Pulitzer. So, you know, learning yeah, something right. is untrue after the fact. That's not the standard anymore. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about the 1619 yeah, Project right. of the New York Times, which exists for the purpose of slandering the United States of America, of destroying the reputation of the founders, of undermining the Constitution, and slandering the whole history of the United States falsely. Uh, speaking of uh, your home state of Minnesota and your home state governor, Tim Walz, uh, he said this about uh, the exercise of uh, freedom of religion in uh, the land of uh, 10,000 lakes. I think the case that the, the president is making, and that may be up for debate in this country, of deeming houses of worship essential, essential services. And, and that's one that we take into consideration. So uh, whether or not uh, freedom of religion is essential is uh, up for debate in Minnesota, according to your governor. Yeah, well, he issued a series of orders, and, and one thing they had in common is that they discriminated against um, against religion, against churches. And so he was actually asked a week or so ago in a press conference, well, how is it that a restaurant or bar can serve 50 people outdoors, but a church can only serve 10? And he went off on one of his trademark, you know, he yammers and yammers away. And then finally he says, I have to admit, though, that the logic of your question is sound, he didn't have an answer. You know, bars can serve 50, churches can serve 10. And that's an example of the kind of unfairness in his orders that many people have commented on. He got sued. There's a public interest law firm here in Minnesota that sued on behalf of five or six small businesses and a couple of churches. And that case where he had admitted publicly that the claim was correct, that he right. was discriminating against religion in violation of the First Amendment, as DOJ has pointed out over and over again. There was a motion for a preliminary injunction on behalf of the two churches that was going to be argued today. And because that motion was imminent and because he'd admitted that the lawsuit was correct, over the Memorial Day weekend, he backed off on his restrictions on churches, even though he himself doesn't believe that they provide essential services. And and specific to that, just to compare and contrast uh, here in Illinois, is 25% occupancy for churches, much like businesses. And this is the point. You can't treat similarly situated institutions differently. That's unconstitutional, particularly when it comes to uh, what uh, most people understand as an essential right, uh, one of the five freedoms contained in the First Amendment. Well, it is actually mentioned there in the Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> you know, unlike some of the things that liberals like to pretend are fundamental rights, uh, it's right there in the First Amendment, freedom of worship. I've been appalled, frankly, at, at what sheep. Uh, so many Americans have been, how willingly in the face of something that, to be perfectly honest, is not all that much of a crisis, you know. I mean, here in Minnesota, more than 81% of our fatalities have occurred in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, and the median age of death has been, you know, 82 or 83 years old. And I think like most states, we classify a person as a COVID-19 death 
if he either had tested positive before he died or exhibited symptoms of COVID-19, which are basically the symptoms of a cold. And so a guy might be dying of cancer. You know, he's in hospice care, expected to die within a week of cancer. But, you know, if he's also coughing and sneezing, they'll, they'll chalk that up as a COVID-19 death. So, you know, how many, you know, new people, additional people have actually died from this virus? And some people do, don't get me wrong. It's a disease. You know, it's, it's not a good thing, no doubt about that. But the idea that this is the kind of a, an emergency, a crisis that justifies suspension of the entire Bill of Rights, I think is uh, far-fetched. John Hindraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment. We were talking about uh, the uh, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Very interesting interview in spikedonline.com. Yoram Lass is the uh, interviewee. He is the um, former director general of Israel's Ministry of Health and a staunch critic of the lockdown policy adopted in Israel and throughout the world. He uh, says to the uh, response, the global response to COVID-19, it is the first epidemic in history which is accompanied by another epidemic, the virus of the social networks. These new media have brainwashed entire populations. What you get is fear and anxiety and an inability to look at real data. And therefore, you have all the ingredients for monstrous hysteria. It's what's known in science as positive feedback or a snowball effect. Yeah, snowball effect of snowflakes. The government is afraid of its constituents. Therefore, it implements draconian measures. The constituents look at the draconian measures and become even more hysterical. They feed each other and the snowball becomes larger and larger until you reach irrational territory. This is nothing more than a flu epidemic if you care to look at the numbers and the data, but people who are in a state of anxiety are blind. If I were making decisions, I would try to give people the real numbers, and I would never destroy my country. That's a statement. And what he's talking about is the economic devastation that has been inflicted just so far, and there's a lot more pain and suffering to come, particularly depending on how quickly a recovery is to be afoot, and it may be some time for large swaths of the population. Yeah, you may receive back from 30% unemployment, but uh, it may be a year till you're back to single digits, maybe longer. And let me tell you something, 10, 12, 15% unemployment, that's a heck of a lot of Americans unemployed. That's a heck of a lot of Americans that are going to be searching for a new job, perhaps a new career. And it's obviously going to be a much more competitive environment. There's be, you know, the introduction of technology. Some of the trend lines that were already happening before this may have just increased in pace. And there may be fewer jobs in particular sectors than there were pre-pandemic. Serious business, particularly when you look at the numbers. Blue states in particular. The editorial board over at the Journal opining on this over the weekend. Two-thirds of the leisure and hospitality jobs in New York and New Jersey about half in California and Illinois disappeared between February and April. That's 43% in Florida, which was among the late last states to lock down and first to reopen. DeSantis in Florida, even though he's uh, the bad example, according to our esteemed politicians, Lightfoot and Pritzker, 
He provided exemptions for low-risk businesses, including contractors, manufacturers, and some retailers. The result? 4% of construction workers in Florida lost their jobs, as compared to 41% in New York, 27% in New Jersey, 17% in California, 11% in Illinois. So just Illinois to Florida, three times as many construction workers lost their jobs as in Florida, which is the bad example. We're the good example. So we're told, you know, it goes on from there. David Graham has a piece in the Atlantic. Why are states reopening? The haste to reopen in defiance of medical expertise, economic data and public opinion is thus peculiar. The most obvious possibility is that it's a testament to the power of the presidential bully pulpit and intense media coverage. Really? Is that why? Or is it the numbers that we're talking about here? People's lives being taken and they're actually looking at the data and listening to a lot of experts saying you should reopen. I'm not just talking about Yoram Lass in Israel. California doctors, doctors in Northern California say they've seen more deaths from suicide than they've seen from COVID-19. The numbers are unprecedented, said a doctor at the John Muir Medical Center in Walnut Creek, California. He said he's seen a year's worth of suicides in the last four weeks, and he believes California officials should end the stay-at-home order and let people back on their communities. Personally, I think it's time. I think originally this was put in place to flatten the curve and make sure hospitals have the resources to take care of COVID-19 patients, but we have the current resource to do that, and our other community health is suffering. Maybe that's why there's a rush to reopen, because, to borrow from Trump in terms of uh, the platitude, because the cure is worse than the disease. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's uh, what Scott Atlas writes in The Hill. Millions of years of life lost because of the shutdown. This is something Rich Carlgar, the publisher of Forbes, uh, did some back-of-the-envelope calculations uh, on uh, a, a few weeks ago, actually. If we consider only, if we only consider unemployed, unemployment-related fatalities from the economic shutdown, that would total at least an additional 7,200 lives per month, looking at research into the uh, economic and public health, the public health consequences of uh, economic destruction, as we've talked about from the beginning. That was this was always a lives versus lives, some lives versus other lives conversation. Assuming deaths occur proportionally across the ages of current U.S. mortality data and equally among men and women, this amounts to more than 200,000 lost years of life for each month of the economic shutdown. Sort of an important statistic. I know that gets perhaps into the ugliness of recognizing we are on this planet for a finite period of time. And and I I know what the response will be. You, you'll, you have zero more years of life if you just let this thing run wild and so on and so forth. Well, this is why from the outset we've talked about balance and we've talked about an honest conversation based on based on believable calculations or reasonable projections about most likely outcomes so we could make a thoughtful public policy decision rather than the rush to incite anxiety and fear and then enact policies that are rooted in anxiety and fear. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Tammany. He's the editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me. 
So, uh, David Graham, as we were just discussing before you joined us at the Atlantic's, uh, is is asking the question, why are states reopening? And he suggests it's just a testament to the power of the presidential bully pulpit and intense media coverage rather than uh, medical expertise, economic data or public opinion. Um, what, what an obnoxious thing for a writer to say. Well, yeah. Why are states reopening? They're opening because people are desperate, because people not only need to get back to work economically, but because work is what defines them. It's what gives them purpose in life. And they've had that taken from them by the experts who claim that if we did not listen to them, that we were going to die, that they needed to lead us by the hand and tell us what to do because otherwise we were headed for a certain illness and potentially death. And so people are wise to that. They look around and they recognize that this, this wasn't going to be the case. And even if it was, we, we kind of know we've evolved as a species to protect ourselves from doing things that might kill us or hurt us. And so they're saying, wait a second, we're smart enough to get back to it. We don't need the experts leading us. We can do this on our own. And so I think, I hope that, that elected officials are responding to an electorate that says, what's happened is nothing short of a crime scene and we're ready to get back to normal living. Uh, when we come back with RealClearMarket.com's John Tamney, I want to plumb the depths of his optimism as to the speed of America's recovery from the lockdown. More with John Tamney when we return. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with RealClearMarkets.com's John Tamney, and I want to have you address one of the assumptions policymakers make uh, when they uh, project out a, the phased-in reopening of our economy. We just shut it down until there's a vaccine or we phase it in and we do so at a leisurely gate to make sure that we eliminate all prospect of risk, even though the data that keeps coming out and keeps being revised down, including by the CDC, seems to suggest there's very little risk for the young and healthy to begin with. So perhaps the policy choice that was initiated back in March and April was the wrong one. But the assumptions, one of the assumptions is, well, when we get back to work, everybody gets back to work. Then we just resume where we were and we continue to enjoy the standard of living that we became accustomed to, just like a rubber band snaps back in place. I am of the view, despite how frustrated and sad and, and angry I am at the political class, I do think that the economic snapback is going to be pretty impressive. And here's why. Let's not pretend like this is the first time politicians have blundered in enormous fashion. This is what they've always done. They've always gotten us into wars where too many people died. They're just incredibly irresponsible people. And it's really more than that. Whenever you suddenly centralize power and decision-making and take it away from the markets, these things are going to happen. And so what's fascinating about this time is, yes, this was just a monumental blunder. 
But can we be honest? Unlike the wars they periodically get us into, no one died. Let me be clear. Young people, the future of the economy, the drivers of progress didn't die this time. They didn't send them somewhere to get killed. People snapped back as they naturally would when politicians are forced into contraction, so they saved a lot. And so you're going to combine lots of capital formation with a very healthy workforce that is ready to get back to it. This is not me excusing the political class, but my sense is it's going to be a very impressive economic rebound. I, I mean, I just say this, I, though, this as a, a teaching moment, which is the standard of life that we enjoy in America is based on production, is based on a commerce in the private sector. It's not based on the government transferring you somebody else's money, $2,000 or $4,000 at a time. And I say that because this is a real debate that's ongoing in terms of continuing to extend benefits that pay people more to stay at home than to work, plus another round of uh, stimulus payments, plus all sorts of first-in-line government funding for states and localities that's being argued. And so it's a reminder that the standard of living that you enjoy is only the result of the market economy. It is not the result of the politicians that are dominating the conversation. Oh, absolutely. You're so right. And we think so much alike. That's actually tomorrow's column. It asks the question, what if this virus had hit the U.S. in the year 2000? Would all these people talking, getting on social media and saying, stay at home and stay safe, don't go outside. Do you think they could have done that in 2000? How would you have? But you see, Webvan was going bankrupt because it couldn't figure out a way to get groceries to people. And then all these pajama warriors talking about how it's just so wrong if people are outside, you know, people interacting with other, they might kill each other. Sorry, internet speeds didn't make for a very comfortable working at home back in the day. And let's be clear, Netflix was still trying to sell itself to Blockbuster. Because you see, the federal government as late as 2005 said Blockbuster couldn't merge with Hollywood Entertainment because it would be too powerful. You see, people used to get their entertainment by driving to a, to a video store to get their work. And so exactly to your point, these brilliant economic producers, these intrepid entrepreneurial types that transformed living conditions only made it possible for the elite in this country to say, well, you know, it really is kind of, it's really only an inconvenience for us to be at home for several weeks. Who cares about the people at the bottom who've got nothing now, many of them who have no safety net? We think people are a lethal menace to each other, so let's stay at home. Why can they stay at home? Exactly because of the production and innovation that you describe and that they routinely talk badly against. They say, oh, inequality is so bad, we've got to rein it in. If not for the inequality, they could never have sat at home and preened and talked about how amazing they are and talked about their virtue and everything for staying at home. There would have been no way to project it in 2000. Guess what? In 2000, Mark Zuckerberg was in high school. Facebook didn't exist, so you couldn't talk about how amazing you were staying at home. <laughs> the uh, mask culture may be with us for some time, at least uh, if the experts have their way. What's your view on, on the mask culture? I think that the mask culture is another one of these things that we're going to look back on, and history historians will look back on and say that they lose their minds. Can you imagine John Wayne wearing a mask? I mean, really, what a decadent society we've become, and I am the ultimate optimist about the United States. I think we come back from these lapses of reason. But really, what a mask is going to somehow protect you from life? He is John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and author of The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, well, uh, really 
exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and just building off the uh, optimism that uh, John Tammany brought to the program. Two um, reviews that I want to share. One comes from a 27-year-old uh, young woman in Minnesota. The other from a circuit court judge in Clay County in southern Illinois. Why don't we uh, start there? Uh, Clay County Judge Michael McKaney uh, commenting on a case before him involving a tanning salon owner seeking injunctive relief from the Illinois governor's lockdown order, Governor Pritzker's lockdown order, seeking a statewide injunction, but uh, was granted temporary injunction so that he could open his shop until uh, a next hearing on the matter next week. But um, uh, here's uh, from the transcript of the court proceeding what Judge McKaney had to say in ruling against the governor and providing temporary injunctive relief for the plaintiff in the case. Since the inception of this insanity, the following regulations, rules, or consequences have occurred. I won't get COVID if I get an abortion, but I will get COVID if I get a colonoscopy. Selling pot is essential, but selling goods and services at a family-owned businesses is not. Pot wasn't even legal and pot dispensaries didn't even exist in the state until five months ago. And in that five months, they become essential. But a family owned business in existence for five generations is not. A family of six can pile in their car and drive to a local lake without contracting COVID. But if they all get in the same boat, they will. We're told that kids rarely contract the virus and sunlight kills it. But summer youth programs and sports programs are canceled. Four people can drive to the golf course and not get COVID. But if they play in a foursome, they will. If I go to Walmart, I won't get COVID. But if I go to church, I will. Murderers are released from custody while small business owners are threatened with arrest if they have the audacity to attempt to feed their families. These are just a few of the examples of rules, regulations, and consequences that are arbitrary, capricious, and and completely devoid of anything even remotely approaching common sense. States' attorneys in this state, county sheriffs, mayors, city councils, and county boards have openly and publicly defied these orders, followed by threats to withhold funding and revocation necessary licenses and certifications unless you obey. Our economy is shut down because of a virus with a 98% plus survival rate. Doctors and experts say different things weekly. The defendant, the governor, cites models in his opposition. The only thing experts will agree on is that all the models are wrong and some are useful. (laughs) I love that line. Really good especially for a judge. The Centers for Disease Control now say the virus is not easily spread on surfaces. The defendant in this case orders you to stay at home and pronounces that if you leave the state, you are putting people in danger. But his family members travel to Florida and Wisconsin because he deems such travel essential. One initial rationale why the rules don't apply to him is that his family farm had animals that needed fed. Try selling that argument to farmers who have had to slaughter their herds because of disruption in the supply chain. And this is the uh, kicker, uh, the concluding paragraph. When laws do not apply to those who make them, people are not governed. They are being ruled. Make no mistake, these, these executive orders are not laws. They are royal decrees 
Illinois citizens are not being governed. They're being ruled. The last time I checked, Illinois citizens are also Americans and Americans don't get ruled. The last time a monarch tried to rule Americans, a shot was fired that was heard around the world. That day led to the birth of a nation can centrally govern based on a document which ensures that on this day in this any American courtroom, tyrannical despotism will always lose and liberty, freedom and the Constitution will always win. That's just a little old country circuit court judge in Clay County, Illinois. Seems to have a better grip on the Constitution and the common sense that uh, is replete throughout the countryside in America and uh, virtually absent in so many of the halls of power, including the hall of power at the state and major city level in the state of Illinois. But I, the, the, the great distillation of the arbitrary and capricious ordering, the, uh, the disabusing people of the bull jive that is being advanced under the guise of science and reminding everybody uh, what this country is and who we are as a people. So uh, in terms of uh, reopening to recover economically, there's a pretty um, positive message about uh, recovering from a liberty perspective, recovering our rights, not allowing the expansion of government to um, stay longer than was consented to. And this is also the theme of Alyssa Algren's piece at a news site called Alpha News Minnesota, covers, uh, you know, Minnesota happenings. Uh, she writes, 27-year-old, uh, she writes, the entire point of freedom is mitigating and determining your own risk levels. Fending for yourself and controlling your own well-being is called freedom. Once the government decides you are incapable of being responsible for your own risk level, that freedom is stripped. Once the government believes it has the power to make that decision, the Constitution is void. She continues, tyrannical power thrives on three things, tragedy, vulnerability, and complacency. Tragedy and crisis are the gateway factors to vulnerability and complacency. However, it's fear that keeps the latter two going. Instill fear, and you create vulnerability. Create vulnerability, and you garner control. Garner control, and you eliminate the individual. Eliminate the individual, and you achieve the progressive left's political utopia, you know, which, uh, as we know throughout the annals of history, is a dystopia. That's my parenthetical remark. And then she concludes on an optimistic note as well. Not only are we stronger than a virus, but we're more capable of handling our own safety than the government. We do not have to destroy our economy and devastate livelihoods to combat this pandemic. Americans were willing to take the temporary hits to their liberties to flatten the curve. We followed the rules. We were compliant with the 15 days to slow the spread. What we are not compliant with is the continued abuse of power backed by zero evidence and practice in the name of the common good and safety. As the country's leaders remain divided on locking down and reopening, Americans are starting to stand together. We will not be vulnerable. We will not be complacent. We will not shrink in fear. After all, the American spirit was derived from rebellion and the desire to be free. Good luck keeping that locked down. Well said, young lady. Boy, if uh, you cobble together the Judge McCaney's and the Alyssa Algren's of America, um, you could have a real vibrant, thriving, free country, couldn't you? So let's keep making the arguments that they're making so that that's exactly what wins the day. This is Dan Proft.
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show uh, over at Fox News. Steve Hilton writing over the weekend. There won't be a recovery from coronavirus in the U.S. unless we reopen schools now. If children can't go to school, parents can't go to work. Uh, That's certainly an issue. That's certainly an issue, which is uh, why we need to get into the details of what opening the schools look like. What does that look like? Does it look like what uh, Michael Chertoff described over the weekend on Face the Nation? Uh, Chertoff, who is a former Department of Homeland Security secretary for President George W. Bush, now a consultant to the mayor of D.C. Here's what uh, he's recommending. Now, one of the recommendations that you put forward, whether or not the mayor takes it, um, is not to fully reopen schools for in-person learning until there is a vaccine. How would that work? What do you mean by that? Well, the idea is, at least in stage one, to have distance learning, have it be done remotely. But then over the next two stages, which mean that we would have basically reduce the uh, outbreak to isolated uh, outbreaks. During the next period of time, we would slowly begin to bring students in. Uh, Those entering transitional grades or needing um, extra instruction would come in first. We'd make sure to maintain distancing in classrooms uh, to keep uh, the collection of people in a particular classroom below a certain number, like 10 to make sure the same youngsters were together throughout the day so you don't have a lot of people mixing with other groups, and then to have present on staff people with health background and experience in case someone displays symptoms or some issue arises. And the idea would be eventually during the course of this time to basically reopen, but in a very measured and deliberate way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Not inconsistent with the CDC guidelines. Wear masks over the age of two. All must wear masks over the age of two. No sharings of items or supplies. Six feet apart facing the same way. Sneeze guards and partitions. One-way routes and hallways. Tape on sidewalks to assure six-foot spacing. No communal shared spaces. Cafeterias, playgrounds. No field trips, assemblies, or external organizations in the schools. Same children stay with same staff. No switching. Uh-huh. Health and daily health and temperature checks, if possible. Uh, a question that uh, Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation didn't ask, but maybe somebody should. Number one, you're going. You really are committed to keeping this going as long as we don't have a vaccine. How many ever years that could potentially take, if ever. Number two, has there been any consideration for the intellectual and social emotional development of the kids in a non-in-person learning environment? Because I haven't seen any studies on the topic. I haven't seen really any of those proposing what uh, former Secretary Chertoff proposed, even commenting on that aspect of it. Here we go again, siloed, single lane rather than the more textured conversation and policy making that is required if you want to be sensible. This is Dan Price. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, or you can get podcast the program as you can on iTunes and Spotify. On social media, at Dan Prop Show, Facebook, Twitter, and all that jazz. We uh, discussed on Friday before the Memorial Day weekend the uh, Joe Biden gaffe on the uh, Breakfast Club, this uh, radio program out of New York City. Here's the exchange between Joe Biden and uh, Charlemagne the God, this radio talk show host on this popular program called The Breakfast Club. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. After that seeped out and uh, criticism ensued, Joe Biden issued this apology. shouldn't have been such a wise guy. I shouldn't have been so cavalier in responding to what I thought was. Uh, anyway, it, it was, I don't take it for granted at all. And no one, no one should have to vote for any party based on their race, their religion, their background. Uh, it's a grand concession. Of course, you had uh, the damage control squad out over the weekend on the Sunday talk. He's saying what he said was wrong, but we need to focus on the things that matter. We need to spend more time down in Brazil. We need to spend more time on, you know, racial justice issues and so forth. The same old rap you've been hearing for 50 years because uh, Joe Biden is their horse and they need to ride him. Now, interestingly, that same morning, Friday morning, he did another interview on CNBC, which has not gotten much attention. But I don't know, maybe it's a mitigating, what you're about to hear will have a mitigating effect on Joe Biden. You can't hold him to account for the uh, ain't black comment because um, he doesn't even know who he's running against. He thinks he's trying to beat himself, apparently. With Joe Kernan on CNBC, Joe Biden said the following. I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. All right, Joe Biden is going to beat Joe Biden. Gauntlet thrown down. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Peter Kersenow. He is an attorney and a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Well, I just wanted to get your reaction um, since uh, you have discussed matters of race and culture, uh, written about them extensively. Your reaction to the reactions to Joe Biden's, uh, you know, if you're confused about Trump versus Biden, then you ain't black. Well, the reaction's interesting, and it's somewhat similar in a couple of contexts to the Hillary Clinton deplorable statement. It may have a similar effect, in fact, but also the kind of 180 that progressives have done on the Me Too movement when you had Tara Reid come out and make allegations against Joe Biden, and then all of a sudden the progressives say, well, never mind, this isn't quite the same as Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford. Or just on that score, even more remarkably, the feminists like Susan Faludi and now Representative Ilhan Omar saying, I believe Tara Reid, but I'm voting for Biden anyway because removing Trump is more important. Which really exposes the situational politics and hypocrisy in all of this. So what Joe Biden did is going to hurt him significantly. There's no doubt about that. He's trying to repair the damage. Uh, The damage will not be extraordinary, but it's going to be enough that it could harm any remote chances that he might beat President Trump in the election. Now, there's a lot of time between now and the election. Obviously, the coronavirus throws a big monkey wrench into the calculus. But nonetheless, Joe Biden needs to get, and he knows this, and the entire Democratic Party knows this, and that's why you have the reaction that you're seeing 
92% of the black vote, and he has to have a robust black turnout in addition to getting that percentage. Otherwise, Trump wins. So there's a good probability that now to repair the damage, he's going to have to find a Stacey Abrams or a Kamala Harris to run with him when I think up until last week it looked like Amy Klobuchar might be the front runner. I think right now the betting odds probably went up significantly on both uh, Harris and um, Abrams. This uh, radio talk show host, uh, Charlemagne, and another example of his perspective shared by uh, a D.C.-based attorney and and liberal activist, this is her byline, Derricka Purnell, she writes this, The Democratic Party holds black people in an abusive relationship. It says you cannot leave because the other option is more abusive. That's why I don't believe that a vote against Biden solely means a vote for Trump. Perhaps it's a vote against being captured by the party that makes empty promises every four years when it's election time and delivers nothing. Perhaps it's a vote against the crime bill, drones and deportations. Perhaps it's a vote against covert and overt racism. Does that philosophy that is articulated by Ms. Powell, I think is shared largely by Charlemagne, the interviewer in that uh, exchange with uh, Vice President Biden, does that represent just trying to leverage this moment because of what you said they need? Not only Biden needs not only the same distribution of the black vote, but also robust turnout and they're leveraging this moment? Or does it represent a real rethinking of the overwhelming allegiance to the Democratic Party by black intellectuals? I think it's a little of both. We saw even before this election that there was a movement, especially among some younger blacks, to question why it is that blacks for such a long time have given fealty to the Democratic Party and see very little from it. At the same time, there's a rock political calculus to leverage as much of the black vote as possible to diminish the black vote for your opponent. Either way, though, I mean, I think this is a fairly important moment. It's not, uh, you know, something that is going to be earth shattering, but we've seen a general erosion over the last maybe 12 years or so to the concept that blacks must have this abiding allegiance to the Democratic Party. And, I mean, there's still the significant allegiance. Hillary Clinton got 92 percent of the black vote, but because of a lack of robust, robust uh, voter turnout, she lost. She had four million fewer votes than Barack Obama got from black voters in 2012. Candace Owens is just one example. Charlemagne, who you just played, is another example of people rethinking the fealty to the Democratic Party. For a long time, the belief was that the Democratic Party was better for blacks. That wasn't necessarily evinced by the evidence that the Democratic Party was doing a whole lot to improve the lot of blacks. Of course, during the Trump administration, blacks have had the greatest economic revitalization in the last 50 years. In fact, the economic numbers for blacks are the best in history, or were prior to coronavirus at least. So a number of people are reassessing allegiance to the Democratic Party. This began probably in, in earnest probably 30 years ago, 25 years ago. In fact, I recall that Leon Sullivan, I think it was, who was HHS director for Reagan, once said in response to a comment by, and I may be mistaken about this, my my memory is not all that great going back that far, but I don't live on Senator Kennedy's plantation. Yeah. Um, this idea that blacks are a wholly owned subsidiary of the Democratic Party doesn't do anybody any good. It does the Democratic Party some good, possibly, but it doesn't do blacks any good. There's no competition for black votes among the various parties, whether it be Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, what have you, because it's kind of ceded to the Democratic Party. Well, they don't. The yeah, ideas are all the same. Yeah, usually they just offer uh, the they offer positions and and you know and big government programs, and so that's what Joe Biden has done so far with you know, uh, a woman and maybe a black woman as his running mate, as you suggest, and uh, his first Supreme Court nominee 
if he's elected, would be a black woman as well. Is that enough anymore? It's not enough for a growing number of blacks, uh, especially younger black voters, who are questioning what it is that the allegiance to the Democratic Party has gotten blacks. There has been for quite some time, and the media perpetuates this, you saw the immediate response from the Washington Post trying to say there's not, nothing to see here in relationship to the statement that Biden made. But there's this, I think, realization that for a long time, the black vote was given to the Democrats because the belief was the Democrats were doing things that assisted the black community in general and understood the black community. And up and then there was a more practical concern, a significant percentage of employed blacks are employed in government and therefore are more inclined to vote for Democrats. But much of it was based on this misunderstanding perpetuated by the media and sometimes the educational establishment that somehow the Democratic Party was the party of civil rights when that was just the opposite. Many blacks, including myself, have been in situations, I remember doing a debate at USC Law School in which this came up when a lot of blacks thought that the Republican Party was anathema to blacks and vice versa for Democrats, that they did all kinds of great things for blacks historically. And I was that it wasn't the Republican Party that opposed the Emancipation Proclamation or the 13th Amendment freeing the slaves or the 14th Amendment equal protection or 15th Amendment voting rights or Teddy Roosevelt's anti-lynching legislation or, or it wasn't the Democratic Party or it wasn't the Republican Party that opposed the 1957 Civil Rights Act, 64 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act. It wasn't the Republican Party that implemented Jim Crow. And you know that George Wallace, Lester Maddox, Orville Faubus, and Bull Connor, they were not Republicans. And when you say this sometimes to a black audience, for the first time, you know, they're surprised because the presumption was that it was Democrats who were doing all these great things with respect to voting rights and equal protection, and it was just the opposite. The Ku Klux Klan was the military wing of the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party, but if you pose the question as to the origins of the Ku Klux Klan to, you know, just your average black person walking down the street and say, who are they affiliated with, Democrats or Republicans, there's a fair probability they're going to say Republicans. So that understanding, I think, is eroding over time. And in addition to that, as I said, some of the younger black voters out there are starting to question the allegiance to the Democratic Party because it doesn't seem to be reaping any rewards. And so you get the Candace Owens of the world and, and the Charlemagnes and others who are asking questions of the Bidens who take the black vote for granted. He is Peter Kersenow. He's an attorney and a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We were just talking with uh, Peter Kersenow about uh, race identity politics in the context of the uh, Joe Biden, you know, you ain't black comment from Friday and all the fallout from that. And I got to say, you know, to some extent, even though he's sort of been a passive uh, acceptor and purveyor of the same. Uh, you're not I'm not surprised that Joe Biden's a bit confused. You almost feel sorry for him. All he's trying to do is follow the paint by numbers ideology of the identitarians. That have taken over the Democrat Socialist Party who argue that your intellect and most certainly your political views are slave to your race, gender and sexual orientation. You know, it's tough for uh, an old war horse of the left like Joe Biden to keep up with the changing times. 
to understand the nuances of intersectionality, to appreciate the, the piece that we referenced on Friday from the former New York Times editor bemoaning uh, the Peloton classes he takes be, where black instructors choose rap music and white instructors choose top 40. And, um, you know, the, this is such a horrible thing. Aren't we at a place in America where whites can white instructors can play rap music and black instructors can play top 40 of the Peloton? Cl- I mean, good grief. Right. It's tough to keep up for Joe Biden. And uh, and so the 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 continued propagation of the myths, the misinformation, he's party to it because the D.C. press corps is party to it. That's the path. What Peter Kersenow was going over through throughout the history that most people don't know with respect to R's versus D's and where they were on so many uh, in terms of sides and so many issues of uh, equal justice before the law when there wasn't equal justice before the law by government sanction, Jim Crow laws and the like and worse. Where he's going is, uh, you know, following the media myth creation about uh, their fellow travelers ideological and their political opponents ideologically. The propaganda Right. The myth is the story. Gaslighting of the American mind, to paraphrase an Alan Bloomism. Uh, I'll give you another example of this. Sue Ellen Browder. She was a uh, columnist for reporter columnist for Cosmo for 20 years. Who now looking back over her time there under the uh, stewardship of Helen Gurley Brown, the celebrator Helen Gurley Brown and Cosmo, women's magazine, you know, cutting edge, forward-looking, fighting for uh, equal rights for women. So we're talking about the race hustle. Here's the gender hustle, the propaganda. She, uh, does Miss Browder, talks about um, the propaganda that she wrote for Cosmo to advance a particular perspective on what it means to be a self-actualized woman in 20th, 20th century America. She write, uh, she says in uh, this interview uh, that what she wrote for 20 years was, quote, propaganda. Propaganda is very sophisticated. It's half-truth, selected truth, and truth out of context. It's a very interesting piece. She's very, very specific, and this is... Just this is exactly how you do it. This is, you know, uh, right out of the uh, Pravda manual or the Cosmo manual, it turns out. She uh, adds, does Miss Browder, propaganda is not just uh, used to sell products. It's also used to sell ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. The feminist movement was fighting for equal opportunity for women in education and the workforce. The sexual revolution, on the other hand, was fighting for all sorts of sexual freedoms Beginning in 1971, Browder worked under the legendary Helen Gurley Brown, editor-in-chief for more than 30 years. Taking cues from Playboy, Helen Gurley Brown turned the struggling magazine into an international empire. She gave her writers a printed list of rules to follow, which included instructions on how to make up parts of their stories to sound more convincing. Listen to these examples. 
This is uh, from Browder's copy of the rules. Unless you are a recognized authority on the subject, profound statements must be attributed to somebody appropriate, even if the writer has to invent that authority. (laughs) Secondly, try to locate some of the buildings, restaurants, nightclubs, parks, streets, as well as entire case histories in cities other than New York, even if you deliberately have to plant them elsewhere. Most writers live in New York. 92% of our readers do not. And Browder makes the point that by planning salacious stories about women having having extravagant affairs in places like Cleveland and Des Moines, the magazine spread its mores throughout the country and throughout the culture by pretending that they were much more widespread than they actually were. This is Alinskyite. Make the majority feel like their views are that of the minority. Marginalize their position. It's just remarkable that the rules... And that uh, there wasn't, I don't know, I I have not seen that these disclosed before. Uh, Profound statements attributing to somebody appropriate, even if you have to invent that person. Locate stories outside of New York, even even if you have to invent the place. (laughs) Essentially, the point was, all women want this. And that's how propaganda works, says Browder. It even worked on her. She was married, living a traditional two-parent family, quite different from what she was espousing in Cosmo. But after having two kids uh, and getting pregnant with the third, she and her husband decided to get an abortion in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade. I didn't realize what a traumatic experience that would be later in my life, how much that would haunt me, says Browder, of her choice in 74. About 20 years later in 94... Browder's last piece appeared in Cosmo. Ten years after that, she converted to Catholicism and sought help, sought the help of the church to heal from abortion. She writes, when you start betraying the truth, it will come back to haunt you. It will get you in the end. And that's why, even though I knew we were making up stories, I still got sucked in and thought abortion would be okay. Uh, And she uh, just adds that, you know, I don't want to take more credit than I deserve for all this evil, but I think... I was certainly part of the evil empire, if you will. And what I would like for young women today is to tell them the truth so they could see how my generation got it wrong, why we got it wrong, and how they can do better, how, how your generation can do better, uh, rather than allowing a woman's movement that was predicated on some legitimate grievances and uh, calls for substantive remedies to discrimination under the law based on a gender, which is inappropriate, but how that was hijacked by money and how the pursuit of money from the Helen girl and political power, I would add to her description, how that uh, perverted any semblance of integrity with respect to, with respect to the, the, the stories that she wrote and, and the narrative that Cosmo promulgated. This is Dan Proff. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I was uh, drawn to uh, this article at uh, AmericanMind.org because of its headline. How could you not be drawn by the headline, The Rise and Fall of the Pajama Boy Nietzscheans? Pajama Boy Nietzscheans happened to be the name of my high school band. We were a uh, Fine Young Cannibals cover band. We used to kill with uh, She Drives Me Crazy. Uh, so for, and, and by the way, the uh, piece fits in nicely with a piece that was written by William Vogley over at the Claremont Review of Books about uh, identitarianism, which I want to pick up with uh, this author and our next guest. He is C. Bradley Thompson, the BB&T Research Professor at Clemson University, Executive Director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, and author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration That Defined It. Brad, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure to join you and your audience today. Uh, please uh, say hi to uh, Dabo Sweeney for us, too, when you get back to school. Uh, <laughs> Everybody wants to say hello to Dabo Sweeney. Uh, of course, of course. Uh, so uh, so God is not dead, but pajama boys are? Well, the pajama boy reference, of course, is to the the left-wing Obama-supporting uh, commercial right. which advertised a, a young man um, in, in his twenties wearing a, a onesie pajama, and it was a source of great critique uh, of conservatives. But what I try to argue in my in my article is that there is a new kind of pajama boy on the right, a kind of pajama boy Nietzschean, as I call them, who have actually many similar qualities as to the left-wing pajama boys, except that they're, rather than pajama boy Marxians, they're pajama boy Nietzscheans. So develop that uh, a little bit more, because uh, you um, go after the... Um reactionary right and uh, specifically single out Notre Dame's uh, Patrick Deneen, who um, wrote uh, a book, Why Liberalism Failed, which we've discussed on this show with him, which uh, you describe as a book devoted to denigrating the principles of the American founding. Yeah, that's right. So there are five different people that I discuss in my essay. The first two, Patrick Deneen and Saurabh Amari, are not what I would call pajama boy Nietzscheans. They are uh, a different sort, namely they are what I would call sort of high church Catholic trad cons or traditionalist conservatives. And they have reputable academic and media positions. They write books. Um, they're very public uh, uh, figures, public intellectuals. Whereas what I call the pajama boy Nietzscheans um, are much younger. They are a generation in their 20s and now 30s um, who um, have in many ways um, suffered at the hands of the left their entire lives. These pajama boy Nietzscheans, as I call them, um, this is a generation of primarily young men who from the time they entered kindergarten until the time they graduated from university were told that they are racist, sexist, and homophobic by definition and by virtue of the fact that they are white, male, and, as they say, cisgendered. And so this young generation arose um, online in a kind of uh, the dark web <clears throat> Uh, in the years after 2000 and in a, 2008, and they have, they it was an entirely online community that they self-dubbed as uh, uh, Frog Twitter, and for many many years it was they were just entirely underground. 
Uh, but they have come out more recently, um, and they have come out primarily, I mean, I would say the two intellectual leaders of Frog Twitter and the Pajama Poinichians uh, are someone who goes by the pseudonym of Mencius Moldbug, uh, although he is known as uh, Curtis Yarvin. He's a well-known tech entrepreneur. And the second and the most important one is um, known as the Bronze Age Pervert. Yeah. That is his. That is his uh, pseudonymous name that Mike, he gives to himself. Yeah, Ma- and he has self-published a book on Amazon called "The Bronze Age Mindset." Ma- Mike, uh, and uh, this d- book now has sold tens of thousands of copies and has a huge following amongst um, young men and women, primarily young men um, in their twenties and, and and thirties. Interestingly enough, many of whom are highly educated. Indeed, many of them are PhDs in political philosophy. Yeah, uh, uh, who... hold, hold on right there, I, and because uh, we, we got to take a break. But when we come back, I, I'm familiar with the Bronze Age pervert. To, uh, Michael Anton over at Claremont Review uh, has written Publius Ducius Moss uh, by his pseudonym, has written about him as well. And and to put the Bronze Age pervert in the same category as Patrick Deneen, um, I need to get a better handle on that. Uh, so we're going to start there with uh, Professor C. Bradley Thompson from Clemson University, author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration That Defined It. More with Professor Thompson right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with C. Bradley Thompson. He is a the BBT, BBNT, excuse me, research professor at Clemson University, executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, and author of America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. And we're having a conversation, maybe a little bit esoteric, but hopefully this sparks our listeners to uh, look into some of the authors and thinkers that we're talking about to better understand the argument that Professor Thompson is making about the so-called uh, the New Pajamas Boy Nietzscheans on the right. And I just want to go to Patrick Deneen and Bronze Age Pervert. That's where we uh, were before the break. A Catholic scholar at Notre Dame and uh, the Bronze Age Pervert. I find it difficult to uh, put those two in any of the same categories. So tell me why they belong in the same. In a sense, they don't, right? I do not and and, and do not put someone like Patrick Deneen or Sora Bamari in the same camp with the Pajama Boy Nietzscheans and the Bronze Age pervert. They are very different. They hold different philosophies, but they are united. And this was the point of my article. It's the largest, most important part of the article. And that is they are all united by one theme. And that theme is a kind of anti-Americanism. So Deneen and Saurabh Amari, on the one hand, and Deneen is quite explicit about this in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, they reject 
the principles of the American founding. They reject the founders, what I call their classical liberalism. They reject the principles, the self-evident truths of the Declaration of Independence, because, as they would argue, those principles lead to the moral nihilism of 21st century America. So, so Rob Amari, for instance, and Deneen would argue that the founders' principles, the idea of freedom and rights, leads to drag queen story hour, for instance, or you forcing children to have operations changing their sex, or they would argue that the principles of the Declaration lead to the Port Huron statement of the new left, all of which I completely and entirely reject. The founders' principles lead to no such thing. Now, the connection with Bronze Age pervert and Mencius Moldbug is that the new pajama boy Nietzscheans, and I am referring specifically there to Moldbug as he's known uh, online and Bronze Age pervert, they too reject the principles of the American founding. Quite clearly, Moldbug in particular rejects those principles, and indeed he regards them to be self-evident lies, the self-evident lies of the Declaration of Independence, he would call them. Instead, he favors uh, 17th century Stuart monarchy, and he thinks the American Revolution was a mistake. And Bronze Age pervert has not been explicitly as anti-American as this Mencius Moldbug or Curtis Yarvin has been, but he too rejects the idea of the principles in the Declaration of Independence as, at best, irrelevant for 21st century America. So those are the ways in which the essay connects someone like Patrick Deneen with Bronze Age pervert in that they share a common anti-Americanism. In my essay, and then more importantly, my book, is a defense of what I call the philosophy of Americanism. It's a defense of the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the philosophy of the Founders' Enlightenment classical liberalism. So, and, and Denis, I just want to stick with him because he's probably the uh, most heady of the names mentioned here. He, he does, as you say, suggest that the inherent features of the the representative Republican form of government uh, imagined by the founders uh, is uh, generating its own failure. The, the success of it is generating its own failure. There's no question he makes the argument you're describing. But then uh, and just to, to provide um, a prompt for more texture here, uh, I want to go to William Bogelli's piece that I mentioned about republics uh, in the Claremont Review of Books. And he references Madison saying that uh, for uh, republics' survival and success, the right social structure matters even more than the right political structure. Government is is most likely to control both the governed and itself when society is disposed to control itself. Madison contended that historically the biggest reason Democrat governance had proved untenable was majority faction. Any faction of any size perverts its own interest, but when it becomes a durable majority, then it dispenses with the the strictures of the representative Republican form of government. And so Madison understood the dangers, I think, that Patrick Deneen is saying that we've realized. I'm not sure I agree with that. So Madison, in the famous Federalist Number 10, understood the ability of democratic majorities, uh, majority tyrannies, actually, to uh, impose their idea of the common good on the society as a whole, thereby violating the rights of everybody. And the problem that I have with Patrick Deneen's argument is that he has this vision, uh, and this is true of many of the so-called Catholic tradcons, 
they have a vision of what they call the common good, which they think is the antidote to the moral nihilism of 21st century America. But the problem is, is that when you set up the common good as the end or the purpose of government, then it sets up a competition amongst various groups in society to capture control of the government in order to impose their view of the common good on society as a whole. So I'll give you two concrete and related examples. In Kansas, there was a debate in the 1990s over whether creationism or evolution ought to be taught in the government schools. In Kansas, religious conservatives captured control of the government, and they were of the government's uh, of the government, and therefore of the government schools, and were able to impose their view of the common good and of education on a secular liberal minority. By contrast, in Massachusetts, secular liberals were able to gain control of the government and of the government school system, and were there, thereby able to force the children, all children, to, in kindergarten, for instance, read Heather Has Two Mommies, right. which, of course, was a great offense to uh, uh, Christian conservatives. So um, it, it, Madison's solution was, in part, to take away the ability of tyrannical majorities from forcing their view, their particular view of the common good on society as a whole. And I think America and the philosophy of Americanism that comes out of the founding period was able to, to, um, was able to deal with the, what we, uh, what academics call the theological political problem by separating both church and state and, for the most part, school and state. When we come back with Professor C. Bradley Thompson, I want to ask whether or not uh, the calls by Senators Rubio and Hawley for something akin to common good capitalism, as they term it, represents a good example of the affliction on the right to which Professor Thompson speaks more with Professor Thompson than we do. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Clemson Professor C. Bradley Thompson. Professor, I want to transition from culture to economic philosophy. Would you say that a secular example of what you're describing is, say, the calls from a Marco Rubio, from a Josh Howley for common good capitalism? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what, what does that even mean? This idea of a common good is an anti-concept. It's just one individual or a group of individuals trying to force their view of the common good on all people. Now, I do have a kind of loose general sense of the common good, well, as it comes out of the American founding, and that common good is the idea that the purpose of government is to protect the individual rights and freedoms of all individuals to provide for justice and security. That is a common good that I think applies to all Americans. But once you start trying to form the souls of individuals, which is what both the totalitarian left and the authoritarian right are trying to do in this country. They're trying to impose their view of the common good, which includes uh, cultural and moral issues on the nation as a whole. And and the common good capitalism example, I mean, isn't that sort of fundamentally a a neo-utilitarian argument? We're going to do the most amount of good for the most amount of people. Yes, it is. I mean, but to be perfectly honest, Dan, I I really have no idea what what it even means. 
And yeah. I don't think they have any idea what it really means. It just kind of sounds good. Right. And if you use and we shouldn't use the term a Marxist term capitalism, but if you believed in free markets, you wouldn't need to an adjective. If you it's like compassionate conservatism. Right. If you believe in conservatism as properly defined, then it doesn't need a modifier. So it's to me, it's a suggestion that they don't really believe and they're doing it for you know political reasons or other reasons in terms of personal proclivities, as you suggest, which I think is a fair criticism to raise or certainly concern to raise. Yeah. I mean, Marco Rubio and Holly, they advocate all kinds of policies that are not in accord with free markets uh, and what I myself call laissez-faire capitalism. I mean, I, I use, even though it was Marx was one of the first people to use the term capitalism, we proudly raise the Jolly Roger, as it were. Yes. Um, I run the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Yeah. And we are we are for, we we are interested in exploring the moral foundations of capitalism, which I think is a much much more important issue. If capitalism agree. cannot be defended on moral grounds, it cannot be defended. Yeah, totally agree. And, and totally. that is precisely where conservative uh, intellectuals um, have failed over the course of the last fifty years. I, I wish we had more time. This is a really interesting discussion. I love the piece that you wrote. So now I'm looking forward to reading the book. The book. America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. He is C. Bradley Thompson, the BB&T Research Professor at Clemson University, and as he just mentioned, the Executive Director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Great conversation. Take care. As I thank Professor Thompson for joining us, I want to thank you for joining us as well in another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Professor Thompson left us with some Petty considerations to reflect upon, maybe some new authors that he referenced whose work you should investigate. Please uh, join us again for another edition of the Dan Prof Show tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.